Grace and peace to you all. Just before, before we get into the preaching of God's Word, just got one announcement I want to highlight really quick. Um, next Sunday after service, after our morning service, we are going to be having a park day, a park day at Mojave Narrows, September 24th, right after church next Sunday. And we've been doing these throughout the year so far, and they have been a blast for the families and everyone who's been involved in those. It's just good, it's just an awesome time for fellowship, to build camaraderie with other brothers and sisters at the church, and, and just to enjoy um, the Lord's Day together as a church family. And so we're going to have another opportunities for those for that. Um, again, this next Sunday after church, um, parked at Mojave Narrows, there is a fee. And you are um, responsible for bringing your own food. But if that's something that interests you, find me after service, and I can definitely give you some more information about that. And if you want any more information about all the things that are going on here at Sovereign Way, you can feel free to pick one of these up. Our bulletins that kind of list down everything that happens here at the church. Or if you have any questions, find me after service, and I don't mind answering your questions at all. So with all that in mind, then, open your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. Taking a break from Galatians. Turn your books or your Bibles to the books of Joshua. We'll be looking at Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. And the title of my sermon this evening, church, is The True Leader of Israel. The True Leader of Israel. And once you find your places in Joshua chapter 5, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening, church. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, the true leader of Israel. This is what the word of the Lord says here in Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's the word of the Lord this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for another opportunity for some, God, to gather together in your name, Lord, this Lord's day to sing songs of praise to you and God just to be gathered to hear your word preached. I pray for my church family, my brothers and sisters this evening. I just pray that, Lord, wherever they are at right now, currently in their walks as they soar through this earth, that, Lord, it will be your word that will, that will just reassure them, Lord, of, of your promises, that will just encourage them, Lord, of who you are, God, and that will just help them to, to be encouraged and just to fight the good fight and just to remain steadfast in this walk that we call life, the Christian life, Lord. And anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, they will just come to faith in you, King Jesus, that as the gospel is proclaimed and your Christ is exalted, Lord, here in the scriptures, that, Lord, they will just come to a true saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that he is the only way to salvation. And apart from him, God, they are perishing because of their sinning against you, Lord. And so I just, we just pray. I pray for those individuals, Lord. And God, for myself, I just pray that I am just a broken vessel. And I pray that, Lord, please fill me with your spirit, Lord, that, God, 
God, I'll just preach nothing but your word and that I will not mess it up in any way, but that, God, it will just be your word going to your people and that your people, Lord, will just receive it, um, will, will be doers who act and not hearers who forget. So ultimately, God, your church is more um, formulated into the image of your son Jesus and that, God, your word is proclaimed today and that, God, ultimately you are glorified. And we just lift up all these things in Jesus, let me pray. Amen. You may be seated, church. I love watching good movies and talking about them with friends and family. One movie I saw a couple months ago is that new Spider-Man movie, Across the Spider-Verse. It's the new cartoon one, right? And all I have to say is that the artwork is stunning. The plot is gripping. And not only does it connect to the first one, but, sorry for the spoiler, it leaves off with a huge cliffhanger for the next one. And if I'm about to spoil the movie for you, it has been out for a couple months now, so it's not really my fault. But anyways... The reason I enjoy watching movies today is that they really reveal the worldview temperature of the culture. What do I mean by that? Well, movies are engines pumping the popular beliefs into the culture. And so movies then are not just mere empty entertainment. And so when it comes to this latest Spider-Man movie, it focuses on a main character named Miles Morales. And yet the problem in the film is that Miles' life seems to be dictated by everyone around him. His family, his friends, his enemies, even his identity as Spider-Man. And and there's even a part at the beginning of the movie where someone says to him, Miles, that's your story. As if he has no control how he writes it. And that idea is repeated over and over again throughout the film until the peak of the film, until the climax. Miles finds out that his dad's going to die and all the other Spider-Mans are trying to prevent him from saving his dad. You need to watch the film to understand this scene. It's very intense. But nonetheless, one of the Spider-Mans tell him, no one can live the life they wish you had, Miles. You just kind of got to deal with it. So how does Miles respond? He says, I am tired of everyone telling me how my story is supposed to be. Nah, man, I'm going to do my own thing. And yet, such a statement, right, captures the spiritual climate of her culture. Because today... It's all about writing your own story, following your heart, being true to yourself. Only then can you really be free. Only then can you lift the life you wish you had. And yet, this cultural belief does not stem in our modern American individualism. Instead, that root is actually found at the beginning of human history, the Garden of Eden as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. Because it's there in the garden that where the lie of human autonomy that, that human self-law is first ever conceived. The lie that humanity can be the Lord of their lives. The lie that they can be gods rather than submitting to the one they were created to glorify the creator God of the Bible. And yet such a lie, loved ones, not only permeates the culture, it also permeates the church. For example, anytime you see or hear about confessing quote-unquote Christians, Accommodating biblical truth for the culture so they don't be canceled? You see an example there. You see at any time, supposed Christians, right, confess Jesus as Savior, but then live however they want, fundamentally dying Christ's lordship. And yet, I even believe that such a lie even permeates churches like Sovereign Way, despite us having good theology. Why? Because any time you... Because anytime that you love the things of the world more than God, it shows that you think at that moment 
that you know what is best besides God, that you are trying to be God at that moment. You're trying to be the Lord of your life at that moment. Now, I know none of you as true believers really believe in that, right? But yet, because of the sin struggle in our hearts, it does remind you of something. It reminds you and I that we need to take heed how we live the Christian life. Because until you make it to heaven by God's grace alone, you must take heed not to be distracted by this world. Because you never know which sin might just choke the hope of the gospel out of you, preventing you from making it to the end in heaven. And I pray that doesn't happen to you, anyone here tonight. Even an unbeliever who here right now denies Christ as Lord and Savior. Because I do not want any of you to go to hell. And so, how can you know whether you live your life as Lord or submit to God as Lord? Well, the historical tonight here provides an answer, loved ones. But before I can tell you that answer, I need to share the story with you first. Because only once I share the story with you first, will you then really appreciate the point of the story itself. And so how does the story begin? Well, the story begins many, many years ago, a long, long time ago, in the year 1406 BC, on the outskirts of an ancient city called Jericho. And it's after 40 long years that after wandering the Middle Eastern desert, you have the nation of Israel. They have finally arrived at the doorsteps of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it is this land that the creator God of the Bible first promises to their ancestor, a guy named Abraham, as an inheritance for Israel forever. And so, Israel is now ready to receive the land of promise, their promised inheritance. And yet before they can do so, you have really a peaceful transfer of power between two men in Israel, between a man named Moses and another man named Joshua. First, who is Moses? Well, Moses, he is a man loved by the nation of Israel because he is the one who faithfully leads them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, all the way to Mount Sinai, all those decades in the wilderness of Sinai, and finally to the long-awaited outskirts of the Promised Land. But sadly, like all good things in life, he dies of old age and never makes it into the Promised Land. And so with Moses gone then, and Israel's about to enter the Promised Land, the Israelites panic. Who is going to replace Moses? Who is going to lead us into the Promised Land? And as always, right, God provides for his people, this time in the story, with a new leader. And that new leader, whom God commissions himself before Israel, is a guy named Joshua, the son of Nun. However, why does God choose a guy, this guy Joshua to replace Moses? Why this man? Well, if you consider Joshua, he is, he is actually Moses' apprentice during Israel's 40-year wanderings, And so as Moses' apprentice, Joshua accompanies him all throughout his time um, when Moses was around, all the way to Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments. Also, if you remember that story of the 12 spies, Joshua is actually one of those 12 spies, the spy in Canaan. And to build upon that, Joshua is only one of the two who give a good report about the land by faith because he trusts in God. He trusts that God will give Israel the promised land. And as a result, God blesses him with the privilege of inheriting it, of even leading Israel to inherit the land. And so as Moses' apprentice for many years, it makes sense for Joshua to succeed Moses, that Joshua will be the new leader of Israel. However, Joshua's first task as the leader is not going to be a walk in the park. Instead, he must lead Israel into the promised land or the land of Canaan. 
And just thinking about that militarily, that's not going to be an easy task. Because when you read the account of what the cities in Canaan were like, their cities were heavily fortified. Their walls were imposing. And if that wasn't bad enough, just think about the inhabitants of the land themselves. Most of them were descendants of actual giants. These people were huge, not because they do their games at the gym, but because they were physically massive. They were imposing. And if you know your Bible, loved ones, it is these reasons that, that, that led the Israelites under Moses' leadership to lack trust in God. And you know what happened? They didn't inherit the promised land because they didn't trust in God. They were too afraid of these obstacles. And as a result, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. And now then, it is their children that Joshua is commissioned to lead into the promised land. And if that, if that burden didn't seem heavy enough, Joshua is about to fulfill the, the promise that God first gave to Abraham, Father Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God says to Abraham that go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you the land of promise, the land of Israel. And so there's burden after burden upon here for Joshua, right? And yet Joshua would also remember Moses' final warnings to him in the book of Deuteronomy. Because on God's behalf, Moses tells Joshua and Israel that if Israel remains faithful to obey God, they will inherit blessings, including the promised land. And yet if, if Israel is not faithful to obey God, they will inherit the curses instead. They will not inherit the promised land. And so if anyone is under pressure here, it's definitely Joshua. Just imagine the stress and the fear rushing through his mind. What if I fail? Do I have what it takes to faithfully lead God's people to fulfill God's promises? And despite these legitimate worries rushing through his mind, God lovingly encourages him. He encourages the new leader here, and he says so in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, saying, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. That's what God encourages Joshua here. And in response, you see that Joshua, he ultimately does not surrender to his fears. Instead, he embraces his call by faith to lead Israel by starting through the Jordan River, to enter the promised land through the Jordan River. And as Israel marches through the Jordan River, Joshua, by faith, then leads them to camp near Jericho in an open field called Gilgal. And while in this place called Gilgal, all the Israelites, by faith, keep the Passover and circumcise all the men to abide in fellowship with God as his people. And by faith, the people of Israel, for the first time, don't mind enjoying some of God's fruit that they have for him, the milk and honey of the promised land, for the first time. And so as a result, once the news of Israel's presence reaches the inhabitants of Canaan, they can only melt in fear. So that's the background of our story this evening. But how does the story tonight begin? Well, the story then focuses, after all that, tonight beginning in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And so look at the first part of Joshua 5, 13, where it says, when Joshua was by Jericho. When Joshua was by Jericho. So as I said earlier, the nation of Israel, they are, they are ready to inherit the land of promise. And so picture this scene again with me. So Joshua and the army of Israel, they are ready to fight. They have been preparing for this glorious day for decades. This is what God has been calling them to do. 
And the gateway to inherit that promise is through one strategic city, the city called Jericho. However, if Israel fails to take Jericho, it's game over for Israel. They can pack their bags and go to Egypt. And to make things worse, Jericho is no easy target. Because remember, their walls are heavily fortified. Even their inhabitants are massive, descendants of giants. And not only that, but the king even knows that Israel is coming and he has every intention of stopping them. And so as the leader of Israel, Joshua has to figure out what is next. God tells him to be courageous. God tells him that he will be with them. But Joshua does not know how the battle with Jericho will play out. No man could possibly know that knowledge alone. Therefore, we see Joshua here at the beginning of the text tonight that he stands by himself as he gazes at the city of Jericho. And the Bible doesn't say why he's alone, but it really isn't hard to imagine why. Because like any good general, perhaps he was surveying the land, doing last-minute checks of terrain and fortifications for the next, next day of battle. But even more likely, perhaps he is alone to pray. And the text in a minute indicates that he, lives, he actually lifts his eyes upward, which means that he was looking downward before that, right? And so it fits with the text that Joshua may have been praying, and the only reason why I say that, because it was common for Jews to actually pray while standing. They actually call, it, they actually call this form of praying a mita. And what a mita is, is that it's prayer done in silent devotion to God while standing. So they'll be standing, praying to God, and maybe looking down as they're praying. That's that's perhaps what Joshua is doing here. And and not only that, but this is something that even the Jews practice today in how they do their prayers. Nonetheless, that's still speculation nonetheless why Joshua was in Jericho alone. But yet, wouldn't you want to pray if God was using you to fulfill his 400-year-old promise? I know I would at least, but I couldn't even imagine that weight on my shoulders. Nor Nor would I want it. And so as Joshua then is just looking down by himself at Jericho, Look, what, look at what the rest of verse 13 indicates here. He says that he eventually looks up. He's looking down at Jericho. Then it says he looks up to see what's right in front of him. And this is what it says here in verse 13. That Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked up. And behold, a man was standing in front of him with his drawn sword in his hand. And just kind of thinking about how this scene opens up here then, it is very similar to an earlier story in the Bible. And if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, this, this scene here actually correlates to a time back when Jacob was, was, was standing alone. Jacob back in the book of Genesis. Because if you look at Genesis chapter 32, you see there that you have a guy named Jacob. He is alone by the Jephok River at night. Kind of like how Josh was alone in Jericho by night. Jacob, by contrast, knows his brother Esau is coming to perhaps to kill him. Joshua here in our story expects a fight with Jericho. And yet before Jacob has to face his brother Esau, as the story goes, if you you look at Genesis 32, a man comes out of nowhere and starts wrestling with him. It's kind of an interesting scene, right? A guy randomly starts grappling with Jacob. Well, before Joshua faces Jericho, a man then appears out of nowhere with a sword drawn. And let me tell you what happened to Jacob, just to kind of give you a hint what might happen to Joshua here. It turns out that guy who was wrestling with Jacob was actually God himself in the form of a man. And as a result, God blesses Jacob and changes his name to Israel because after him, his descendants will be the the, the multitudes of the people of Israel. Well, with that in mind then, what's going to happen with Joshua? 
Is it going to be the exact same encounter? Got to keep reading to see what the text reveals to you tonight. And so back in verse 13 then of Joshua 5, again, Joshua looks up and he sees this man before him with a sword drawn in his hand. And so let me ask you a question then. What would you do if you saw a man appear right before you with a sword drawn in his hand? Would you fight him? Would you beat him up? Well, look at Joshua's response here. And it should tell you something a lot about him here. When he sees the man, he then approaches him. And that's really indicative, ultimately, that because Joshua trusts in God, he's going to be strong and courageous no matter what goes before Joshua's faith. face. And although this man is mysterious in verse 13, he's a stranger. He's a complete stranger to Joshua as he stands before him. And really, despite that detail being there, what's essential to notice is really in this stranger's hand is a sword drawn. He has a sword in his hand. But why? Why does this stranger have a sword in his hand randomly meeting Joshua? Well, that drawn sword out of its sheath, it indicates that this stranger is ready to fight. It indicates his combat readiness, which is appropriate because Joshua... He's preparing to go to war with Jericho soon, the very next day, actually. And I'm actually going to bring up later why this drawn sword is so significant. I'll bring it up later at the end of tonight. In the meantime, after Joshua approaches the mysterious man, look at what verse 14 says then in response. It, it leads into a question and an answer. Joshua's going to ask a question, and then we're going to see a very surprising response by this mysterious man. And so Joshua asks this mysterious man then, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And so Joshua's question then indicates that his encounter with the stranger is out of the ordinary. It's odd. It's different because he has no clue who this guy is that he is encountering. Indeed, as we will see, it is no ordinary encounter. And so whatever the thoughts that were rushing through Joshua's mind at this point, it does provide the significance of Joshua's question and the answer he receives. And so if you look at verse 14, look at how the mysterious man answers Joshua's question. Joshua asks this man, are you for us or for our adversaries? And this guy says, no. It's a weird answer, right? No. Seems like he kind of deflects his answer. No, Joshua, but I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now I have come. And so now we at least know the identity of this mysterious man, that he is the commander. He is the captain of the armies of the Lord. However, who is exactly the commander of the Lord's army here? And what many theologians refer to this situation here, and there's a lot of situations that happen like this throughout the Old Testament, a lot of theologians would call Joshua's experience what is known as a theophany. A theophany. But what does that mean, right? Well, a theophany is a physical manifestation of simply God. But what do I mean by physical manifestation, right? Well, for example, as Christians, you know that no one can see the face of God because the Bible says clearly that no sinful man who sees the righteous face of God will live. They they will die instead because of God's holiness, And so that's with God, right? And we can't even say that about God, the Holy Spirit, because he can't necessarily be seen. He's a spirit. And so how should you really think about, well, what does it mean that this event in Joshua 5 is a physical manifestation of God? Well, think about that story I mentioned of Jacob earlier. 
Because in that story, Jacob wrestled with this guy named God, or, or this mysterious man, and he says in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, that I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. That's what Jacob says there. Or consider another story where Abraham has a similar experience. When he's in his tent by, near the Oaks of Mamre, who did Abraham exactly see causing him to say, O Lord, I have found favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. Or when he goes to the pagan guys like Balaam, he says that he sees a man with his sword drawn in his hand, leading him to bow before him in Numbers chapter 23. Very similar to our text tonight. Not only that, but who was the angel of the Lord who appeared before Samson's parents in Judges 13, leading them to worship this angel? And not only that, but you got stories like who was the fourth person with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace causing the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar to say, this fourth guy is like a son of the gods, as he says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Similarly, who is the commander of the Lord's armies? Who is this guy that Joshua meets here in our text tonight? Who is it exactly that all these people saw? Who? There's only one really possible explanation. And scripture attributes the identity of the individual in all these passages, especially the commander of the Lord's armies, as a guy named the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. And to keep it simple... Every time the angel of the Lord is mentioned throughout the Old Testament, the identity is always attributed to a specific person, God. That is God the Son, ultimately Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. And you can know that this angel of the Lord is Jesus because the whole Old Testament references his appearance as the angel of the Lord. And once Jesus is born, right, the term angel of the Lord, it never comes back after Scripture. It only comes before the incarnation of Christ. And once Christ comes into the world, you never see this character, the angel of the Lord, never again. And so that term, in a sense, becomes extinct because when Jesus comes, the Son of God, he made his debut entrance into the world because he was fulfilling thousands of Old Testament prophecies at that point. And so this specific story tonight is not just really a theophany, a physical manifestation of God. It is more accurately called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And so the commander of the Lord's army then is not just the angel of the Lord, but really Jesus in pre-incarnate form. It's God. And now you must not overlook the significance of how Joshua responds to this question, no. Joshua asks Jesus, God, are you for us or for enemies? And the angel of the Lord's army says, no. It's necessary that we kind of look into that. What does he mean by that? Because that response is odd. And it's going to illustrate a pertinent truth in the text tonight. The commander of the Lord's armies responds to Joshua. Seems unusual, but there is a reason why he phrases it that way. The word no in the Hebrew is just simply the word lo. I know that seems very different, but that's how you say no in Hebrew, lo. And in this context of the story, it really means neither. Neither. And so what that means then is that when Joshua asks this God, are you for us or for enemies? God's answer is neither. I don't fight for you. I don't fight for your enemies. I am for neither. And something to note here, the way that this word is functioning in the Hebrew in this particular sentence, it's placing a huge emphasis on it. So don't picture Christ as saying neither or no as your moody teenager response to you ask, you ask him to do a chore. Instead, 
picture him staring into Joshua's soul and saying, Joshua, no way, man. I don't fight for Israel alone, nor for your enemies alone. Neither. I fight for neither. And so the meaning of the word no here is evident in the commander of the Lord's army's response to Joshua. Doesn't fight for Israel, doesn't fight for their enemies, the Canaanites. Instead, who does he fight for? He fights on the side of the sovereign creator of the universe. That's why he's called the captains of the Lord's armies. And since Joshua 5 here is a Christophany, the commander fights for his kingdom, God's kingdom. But is that, but is that a contradiction? And what I mean by that is that doesn't, it, doesn't God say in Scripture that he promises to fight for Israel? You see that in Exodus 14.14. 14. You see that in other passages like Deuteronomy 1.30. And so now, he, is he saying that he doesn't fight for Israel? What's going on here? Well, since the Bible is the inspired word of God, the meaning of the commander of the Lord's armies is significant. It's not a contradiction. And since Israel is God's chosen people and is protected by him, consider what God says here in Genesis 12.3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, talking to Abraham and his descendants, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the fact that the Jewish people still exist and inhabit the land of Israel today proves that that promise is still in effect. However, they are repeatedly disobedient, falling short of the glory of God daily according to their inherent sinfulness. Scripture is very clear about that. Nonetheless, God still fights for God. Because God fighting for Israel is God fighting for himself since he chose Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom that glorifies him before the nations. But, but here he is making it clear that he just doesn't fight for Israel as if he is beholden to a human nation. Because if that was the case, then God would have to fight for Israel even when Israel acts wickedly and worships false gods. And so God is making it clear here. That is not how it works, Joshua. As far as Israel obeys God is how far God will fight for Israel. And so God is making it clear to Joshua that Joshua... You actually asked the wrong question, buddy. The question should have been, God, are we on your side? Not are you fighting for us or for your enemies. God, are we on your side? And if the answer is yes, then of course God is going to fight for Israel in any battle. But when they are not on God's side, then they will find themselves fighting against God. And so thanks be to God that even when you or I or Josh, when we act as fools, ask foolish questions, that God will never leave you as his people nor forsake you. God shows mercy. God shows grace. And so even when you see the word low or no here indicated by God, he is going to mercifully fight for Israel's behalf to inherit the promised land. But not in the name of Israel, but in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the creator God. But that then begs a question then. Why does God choose to fight for Israel in the first place? And if you recall God's own words to Israel, he says earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, really emphasizing why he likes Israel to be his people in the first place. God says there to Israel in Deuteronomy 7 that you are a people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has promised you out, of, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God doesn't fight for Israel then because they are worth saving. He actually says they're the least of all the nations. And nor does God protect Israel for they are valuable because they are the weakest of the nations. Even the Jews themselves aren't inherently special because like, like every other people group, they all deserve justice for the rebellion against the holy and righteous God. Instead, the thing that, that separates Israel from everyone else is that because God fights for Israel. He chose them as his people. Therefore, he's going to keep his promises to Israel and fight for them. They're his children. They are his people. God loves Israel, for he is their God, and they are his people. And so with that in mind, then it's, it's, it's obvious who is truly leading Israel at this point. Think about it with me. Because who is it that commissions Joshua to be the new leader of Israel, replacing Moses? It's God. Who was it that promises Joshua that he would cause him to lead Israel to inherit the land of promise? It's God. Who promised Joshua that despite the fears he has, he would not be alone during the conquest of Canaan? None other than the God of the Bible. And who is it that first promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their ancestors, the Israelites, would inherit the promised land? God alone. God himself. This is why the commander of the Lord's army came to see Joshua before they do battle to tell them that he is not the true leader of Israel. It's God. God, the creator God, Yahweh, he alone is the true leader of Israel, the leader of his people. Because he alone causes Israel to inherit the land promised according to his sovereign will. Therefore, as we continue in the story then, if you look at the end of verses 14 and 15, you then see another question and answer exchange. Joshua then asks another question to the commander of the Lord's armies by saying, look at verse 14, what does my Lord say to a servant? What does my Lord say to your servant? And in response, this is very interesting, the commander of the Lord's army says in verse 15, Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And so the Christophany in Joshua 5 really becomes evident here, because not only did ancient Israelites realize what would be happening as they read this, but as Christians... Does this story not sound familiar? Because not only does Joshua experience something like this, but even Moses experiences something like this, right? Even Joshua would have realized what is going on here because he served under Moses for those 40 years in the wilderness. And if we don't know what passage or story I'm referring to, it's found at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3 when a guy, when Moses had a similar experience. This is what he writes here in verses 1 to 5 of Exodus 3. He records that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the high priest of Midian, and, his, and led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, we see that name there again, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet, 
For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And so we see this story about Moses. He's still a shepherd in the land of Midian. He is not the great leader that Israel, Israel would know him a little later, but yet he has an experience with God. He has an experience with God when God speaks to him through the burning bush. And the implication here is that God tells Moses and Joshua to remove their sandals. Why? Because they're standing on holy ground. This is where God is dwelling. And since God is holy, you must take your sandals off so that you do not desecrate this holy ground. And not only that, but the scene also demonstrates the correlation between that of Moses and Joshua. Because before Moses would do his mighty works for God's glory, he was called out by God first. It is at the burning bush that God commissions Moses and authenticates him to be God's spokesman, to be God's leader for Israel. Well, similarly then, even though Joshua was commissioned by God back in Joshua chapter 1, verse, um, Joshua chapter 1 at the beginning, that was Joshua's private encounter or sorry, Joshua's private encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, this is what really authenticates his succession of Moses in a divine manner. Because it is God who is in control of making Joshua the new leader of Israel, not Joshua himself. Joshua can't decide that for himself. Only God can. It was the same for Moses. It is now true for Joshua here as well. And so God not only authenticates Joshua's leadership role with the encounter, but he still is keeping his promise to Joshua. Again, as he says earlier in Joshua 1.9, that have I not commanded you, Joshua, as you're going to be my leader, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that would have been reassuring to Joshua to hear those words before he takes Jericho. Because God is with Joshua, not only with Jericho, but with every battle, every decision, every step during the conquest of Canaan. And if, and if you remember the significance of the drawn sword that I mentioned earlier, it's important because it really demonstrates that now the commander of the Lord's army, he is ready to fight. But not only for Israel, but to make sure that the promised land is given to Israel as an inheritance. God is going to keep his promise to his people, Israel, for he is a faithful God who never turns back on his word. He keeps his promises. Therefore, Joshua's submissive worship to God here leads him to obediently remove his sandals in Joshua chapter 5, verse 15. And it says that, and because God's goodness as the promise keeper, this prompts Joshua to rightly give thanks to God, to rightly worship God as the true leader of Israel. And it's because of that story that if you read, read on, you'll see that Israel would ultimately defeat Jericho and ultimately take the promised land because God keeps his promise to his people. And so that's really the story here in Joshua 5. But yet you're probably all asking yourself, well, John, what's the, main, what's the main idea to that story? How can a story like that speak into the life of a Christian today? And I know I went over a lot up front, but that was all necessary so that you can all appreciate, really, the way of the story's point tonight. And this is the main point of the story tonight, that the true leader in your Christian walk is Christ. The true leader in your Christian walk is is Christ. And you know that because Christ, as the commander of the Lord's armies, shows Joshua that the true leader of Israel is not Joshua himself. Instead, it is the God of Israel. Likewise, the same principle applies to you all tonight, loved ones. Because, for example, Joshua may have stared originally at Jericho, feeling that the weight of the world is on him alone. Man, how am I going to do this? This seems impossible. And yet, 
Christ shows him that it's not how it works. That's not how it works, Joshua, because this isn't on you. It's on me. Just believe in my promises as the Lord and follow me as your God. Likewise, brothers and sisters, you might be putting everything on yourself right now. The pressures regarding your work, the pressures in your homes, the pressures regarding your health, finances, maybe struggles with sin, homework at school, the culture, especially this state, right? Don't let me get started on that. And you may even know that in light of all that, theologically, God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he ordains all things, both good and evil, for your good, to be more like Jesus Christ. And yet, sometimes the pressures in this life may choke out that promise in your lives, leading you to forget God's promises, leading you to feel that, man, is the weight of the world really on me, on you alone? And yet, just like Joshua, Christ is telling you the same thing also. This isn't on you, my child. It's on me. Believe in my promises as Lord and follow me as your God. Because whatever I have said to do in my word, go and do these things likewise. Abide in my word and I will abide in you. Cast your burdens upon me and for, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come and find rest in me and I will take care of the rest myself. That's what Christ promises to his people. That's what he promised to you as his children. And he has ultimately done that, loved ones, through his perfect work on the cross by removing the ultimate burden that we all face and is that of sin and death. And just to really see the connection here in the book of Joshua to the gospel of Christ, if you do a word study on the name Joshua himself, you will find that the word Joshua in the Hebrew actually means salvation. And what's interesting is that the word Joshua or, Yehu- or Yehoshua is actually similar by word, to the name of Jesus in the Hebrew, Yeshua, that Jesus is salvation. And just to further show this connection here, Joshua was given, right, the the responsibility to lead Israel to inherit the land of promise. Why? So that they can have rest in God in the land of promise. And yet, likewise, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that that wasn't the ultimate rest promise that God promises to to his people. Rather, that was a type. That was a shadow that would ultimately point to the the greater leader than Joshua, the the true leader of Israel, Jesus Christ, who would come down to this world 2,000 years ago to live a perfect life, to die as as an innocent substitute on the cross so that all who would believe in him would not perish in hell for their sins, but have everlasting life in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is really what the land of promise points to. Jesus is where we ultimately have rest in. Not by loving the things in this world, but realizing that the reason why this world is so broken is because we're the problem. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. Although God made everything originally good, what happened with the first humans? They sinned against God. And boom, sin and death came into the world, and we have really experienced the consequences. Not only personally, but you can read about it all throughout human history, and you can count on that you are still going to continue all of that until the day you die or until Christ returns to judge evil once and for all and make all things new. But the good news of the gospel is that because Christ is salvation, he lives a perfect life as the God-man died on the cross for sinners like you and me so that if you believe in him, that he is Lord, that he died for sinners like you and me, you will be saved. Because by you repenting of your sins, your sins are placed into Christ's account. He is judged on the cross on your behalf. And in response, all the good works that he ever earned in his life, it's given to your account. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, not because Christ had to, but because of your faith in Jesus that he is who he says he was. 
the Lord of all the earth, the Savior of the world. And that's what Christ came to do. And you know that's true because three days later, Christ rose again from the grave, showing that he really was who he says he was, the resurrected Lord. And all who have faith in him will not only find peace in this life, but most importantly, peace in the next life. Not saying that the Christian life is going to be easy because it's not most of the time, but if you believe in Jesus, you, you, can, you can know that your greatest burden has been removed because Christ bears out on your behalf. And so if, if, if there's anyone here who does not believe in Jesus, I exhort you, he is the Lord. He is the creator of all things and he has come 2,000 years ago to die on the cross so that you will not perish in hell for your sins, but because God's love the world, he gave his son Jesus so that whoever believes in him will not perish in hell forever, but have everlasting life in Jesus, eternal rest in Jesus. What Josh, when the Israelites tasted a little bit in the land of promise, you can only find permanently in Jesus by faith in him alone. Not only in this lifetime, but in the life to come. So if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith in Jesus, I exhort you, repent of your sins, realize that you have committed cosmic treason against the creator God, confess your sins, Place your faith in Jesus and you are born again. And now live for him. Live for the one that you were called to live for, loved ones. And so with that in mind then, I must ask a question. Are you then, whether you are an unbeliever or even my fellow brothers and sisters, are you truly following Christ in light of that reality? Are you in his word, reading his word, chewing upon his word, living upon his word? Do you depend upon God through prayer? Or... Do you live as if you're the one that controls the outcome of your plans and goals in life? As if you're the Lord of your life? And if so, you're going to find yourself stressing out like Joshua, staring at Jericho. It's inevitable. And yet, if you cast off your trust in self and remember that Christ is the captain of your life, you can then properly live for him and also have peace and rest in him. Because our culture, sinful humanity, especially in the United States, believes that you can dictate truth based on your own subjective reasoning. Yet no one can escape the objective standard that rules all reality. Knowledge, morality, time, and space. Because everything in creation points to the one who is the author of all of it. And that is God. That's Jesus. As Romans 11.26 says about God, that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory alone, not to man but to God forever. And so no matter what you do as humans, even as born-again Christians, you must remember that you can do nothing apart from God. It's impossible. You cannot do anything to glorify God based on your own abilities. Instead, you need God by his grace to sustain you each and every single day, even as Christians, to nourish you through daily needs, both physically and physically and spiritually, and most importantly, you need God as your Savior, for he alone is the Lord of your salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, you must submit to God's sovereign lordship and faithful trust alone. Despite the trials, the pain, the anxieties, the scourgement, or any unpleasant pressures you will face in this life, it's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when you will, right? Remember first, that's all temporary. It's all passing away. And even when they don't feel like they're passing away quickly, they are all making you more like Christ to not depend upon yourself, but to depend upon God alone. Don't forget what God promises in Hebrews chapter 13 then, in verses 5 to 6. He says that keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that you as his children can say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear 
what can man do to me? And so God is your Lord. He is the leader of your Christian walk, loved ones. Once you embrace this, you will only rightly fall down in your face in true worship, like Joshua does in the story, praising God for who he is, because you know at that point that he is with you wherever you may go. Therefore, sinful humanity will continue to live as if the creator God does not exist. We see it all around us, and if we're not careful, it can happen to us. And yet, in humanity's heart of hearts, in our consciousness, people know that the creator God exists, for humanity knows right and wrong exists absolutely. And there will be a day when the Lord is going to return. Christ is going to return to judge evil once and for all, and not only that, but to restore this broken universe anew. But for those who deny Jesus as Lord and Savior now, you're still going to meet Christ one day, but he's not going to be your Savior. He's going to be your judge. Because it's only those who have placed their faith in him alone that they will meet him one day, not as their judge, but as their Savior. And so, loved ones, live each and every day by your faith in him. Allow Christ as Lord, to, as the Lord of your life, to control your heart how you will live for him. Not based on what you want or desire in this life, but based on what God wants and desires for you as he has told you in his word. And not only how you live before God, but especially how you live before others. As one Puritan writer once said long ago, that perhaps the greatest problem for God's people is that they always forget about God, especially his promises. And so, loved ones, don't forget about God's promises. So like Joshua before you, do not be afraid. Remember that he is with you wherever you may go. That's a promise. And not only because he is the true leader of your Christian walk, but because he is your savior, that you can rest in him forever. That's a promise of scripture, loved ones. Do not ever forget it. So that's, so that's all that I have tonight. We are about to get ready for the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to pray. I'm going to give a communion warning. And then we'll prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, loved ones. So join me, loved ones, as we approach the Lord one more time in prayer.